You probably agree with me when I say 2020 as a year has been trying. Uh, That's probably putting it mildly for a lot of us. I mean, you think about a COVID-19 followed by this shutdown that that just kind of wreaked havoc over our economy. And then George Floyd was killed and we saw protests break out all over the country. And some of those turned violent with shootings and buildings being looted and burned and people living in fear for all kinds of reasons all across this nation of ours. Add to that an insane number of wildfires out west and a historic number of named hurricanes in this part of the country. It's been a crazy year, to put it mildly. But all of that was kind of secondary when you think about all of that has happened at a whole new level because of an election year. An election year. Our nation has been polarized through this whole process. A lot of people stopped talking to their neighbors, coworkers. Even some of them stopped talking to their family members because of the politics. It's the yard sign in the yard, or it's the bumper sticker on the back of the car. I just wondered not long ago, I wonder if we're still a civil society. The Washington Examiner ran an article last August that was titled, Don't Let Politics Divide Your Family. And they took a look at some famous families in the world of politics and how, the, how politics was having an impact on their own families. They started with a look at the counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway. Some of you are probably familiar with her. They talked about how she had just announced that she was stepping down from her role at the White House. At the same time, her husband, George Conway, announced that he would be stepping down from his role at the anti-Trump super PAC known as the Lincoln Project. Is politics really worth the collapse of familial relations, the article asked, especially when it happens in such a public way? Well, this happens not just to Republicans. It's not just a, a you know, right side of the political spectrum problem. It happens on both sides of the aisle. The article talked about how Susan Rice, President Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, has some experience with this issue herself. You see, her son is 23 years old, and he is a hardcore Trump supporter. He's the president of the Stanford College Republicans. This is what Ms. Ambassador Rice said politically, the two couldn't be more different. My son and I have some robust, robust disagreements over some matters of policy. Not all, but some. And yet at the end of the day, you know, I love him dearly and he loves me. Family first. It can be very hard, but never stop trying. Nothing matters more. The advice is spot on. But as many of you can probably attest, it's easier said than done. If you have someone who disagrees with you politically in your circle, some think this is because of the Trump era. But the truth of the matter is, is politics has had a negative impact on relationships for a long time. In fact, you go back to the very beginning of our nation when Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, two of the most instrumental members of 
of the founding fathers who formed this experiment known as the United States of America. They both believed deeply in a vision of self-government, and they were able to inspire countless others to take up this cause of liberty. And though they were friends, it's important to note that Adams and Jefferson disagreed on almost everything on how to structure this new nation, how to run it. In fact, their feud was in part due to politics. Two friends who would feud for decades. In fact, the feud lasted until they died. Ironically, they died just about four hours apart on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's been happening for a long time. People have been at loggerheads over political differences. There was a headline from the Fayette Fayetteville Observer, and it reads this. It's a pretty long headline. It says, husband likes Biden, wife likes Trump. This election has tested the state of their union. Millions of Americans fight over the 2020 election. Many happen to be related. The story talks about a couple. Their name is Terry and Reagan Long, And there are a couple who live in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which just happens to be a battleground state in this year's election. But they have their own personal battleground when it comes to this year's voting. Terry is a lifelong Democrat who found out just a few years ago, accidentally, that his wife Reagan had been voting Republican for a number of years. This election, you can imagine... He has a Biden magnet on his car. She has a Trump magnet on her car. Each advocate for their views in lengthy posts on Facebook. But she was a little put out when she looked at the bank statement and saw that her husband, Terry, had donated to the Biden campaign. He didn't ask her, but she knew she wouldn't have agreed anyway. The couple admits that their 15-year relationship would benefit if they could just stick to the moratoriums they sent set on not talking about the campaigns. As their five children have developed a political awareness of their own, they too have picked sides. Their three daughters are supporting their mom's political uh, backings while their oldest son sides with their dad. Currently, their 16-month-old is remaining apolitical. During this election, a record number of Americans actually voted. More people voted in this election than any election in American history. And millions of Americans are still arguing over who won. And some just happen to be related to each other. In fact, some happen to be married to each other. While this isn't new, most of us have that opinionated relative who always needs to make his or her point at the Thanksgiving table. You know who they are. If you don't, it's possible you might be that person. But it seems the fallout families face over these differences has gotten worse as the debate around American politics has intensified. One thing that is true, Reagan and Terry Long, like most Americans, 
cannot wait until this election season is completely over. Arguing with friends and family continues to cause problems for some. We feel passionately about a candidate or an issue, and when the topic comes up, we share our thoughts. And sometimes we're surprised when we learn that not everyone in our circle of family or friends feels the same way that we do. Some will try to convert those who disagree only to find themselves engaged in verbal combat. In the end, let's face it, nobody wins. Feelings get hurt, people stop speaking to one another, and relationships get damaged. It seems every four years, we see the same thing happen. I wonder how do you fix that? Well, Paul gave us a verse that speaks to this. It's in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 18. It says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This verse is broken down into three parts. First, it has a, a clear directive. The clear directive is this, live at peace with everyone. Now, this may sound impossible to some of us, And the reason we might feel this way is because we have no idea how others are going to respond if we disagree with them. But I want you to read that directive one more time. Live at peace with everyone. What Paul's saying here is that as followers of Jesus, we should live at peace with everyone. We should take steps to live at peace. We should be predisposed to live at peace with everyone. You know, I can't control what others say or do, but I can control what I say and do. It is my choice to live at peace with everyone. How about you? Is that your choice too? Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, the Auschwitz camp. Surviving the inhumane treatment that he suffered while he was there, he was eventually liberated from that camp. And he would later become a psychiatrist. During a talk he was giving a few years after his experience of liberation from Auschwitz, he was talking about being in Auschwitz. And he said this, he said, he observed this, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You know, we can't control what happens in the stock market. We can't control what our kids turn out or turn out to be or the decisions they make as adults. We can't control what our boss does or how he feels about us or the things that he might even say about us. We can't control how someone drives on New Circle Road. We can't control about 99% of what happens in this world, but I have 100% control of how I'm going to respond to what happens to me. So you can decide today, following a contentious election, you can decide today that you will live at peace with everyone. I hope you do. Well, I said there were three parts to this verse. There's this clear directive, and then there are two qualifiers. The first qualifier is, if it is possible, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible. 
If it is possible to suggest that there may be situations where even when you want to build a bridge of peace to another person, there may be reasons in place beyond your control that make it impossible to have peace with them. The other person may have deep-seated hate for your beliefs. They're just not able to listen to you or even be around you. In fact, you kind of represent these beliefs that they hate. Or there may be others who, because of your political posts supporting Obamacare or pictures of you wearing a MAGA hat, that they're, they're carrying this deep bitterness toward you. Even when you want to broker peace, it still may not be possible with some people. Well, Paul gives us the second qualifier. The second qualifier is this. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This qualifier indicates that there are situations when you can make a difference. You can actually build a bridge of peace to a person who you're at odds with or in conflict with. If you're going to do that, if you're going to do your part to live at peace with everyone, it starts by making a key decision, and that is this. Decide to respond like a peacemaker. Decide that that's how you're going to respond. When, when you engage this person, you're going to respond with the intent of making peace with them. As Viktor Frankl said, you're the one who determines your response. Yeah, you can't control what they do, but you can control how you respond to that. So the question we need to ask is, what will my response be when I encounter an opportunity to build peace? See, the idea behind this, as far as it depends on you, is that when there is conflict, make sure that you aren't the cause of it. You may not be able to convince another person to get along with you, to live at peace with you, but at least you can make sure that you aren't the instigator or the cause for this disagreement. One other thing that I think is important with regard to this qualifier, and that is that Jesus made the point that we should be peacemakers. He said it in the Sermon on the Mount, part of the Beatitudes. He said, Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Clearly, God wants us to be peacemakers. So ask him to provide you with the wisdom that you need in order to make good decisions, in order to facilitate peace. Let's be honest. <clears throat> All of us face situations when we truly don't know what the right thing is to do. I mean, you live long enough, you're going to have a whole, a whole list of those times. Even though we're smart, we're educated people, we have a lot of experience that have given us a tremendous amount of insight, and yet there are times when we still don't know what the right thing is to do. We just don't know how to respond in the right way. This year has been filled with all kinds of scenarios that most of us, we've never encountered before. The debate over masks. Or should we reopen the commonwealth or should we keep the commonwealth closed? Debate over racism and the influence of law enforcement. Should school be in person or should it be online or should it be some kind of hybrid? And where do I go to weigh in on that? 
And of course, Trump or Biden. We can't get away from all of these things, can we? And most of them are things we've never dealt with before. And it's easy to find yourself not knowing what to do. Listen to what James says, the half-brother of Jesus, in his book, James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says this. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You see, when we ask God for his wisdom, he will give us an understanding that James says sows peace. I want that. I want more of that in my life. So as far as it depends on you, it means that there are things that may keep you from living at peace with someone, but it also indicates that there may be things we can do to create a positive environment in order to nurture this peace. And I want to encourage you to take three specific steps today to help prepare you to live at peace with everyone. Step number one, eliminate things that cause conflict with others. There are a lot of things that we do that create friction. Some of them we know. Some of them we don't. Things that create hostility when we do them with others. One example, kind of a, you know, innocent example are sports rivalries. They can cause conflict between the best of friends when we gloat over our team beating your team. Criticism is one of those things that can create conflict. I mean, some critiques are helpful I mean, when they're given constructively and they come from a person who you know loves you, but other times they can be seen as just condescending. Insensitivity can create conflict. We might not even be aware of it because our insensitivity makes us not aware, right? When we're inconsiderate, we can be perceived to be a jerk. And I will tell you that jerks are seldom good peacemakers. When we flaunt our successes, this can hurt others. Don't take a victory lap because that can be disrespectful to people who you want to build peace with. Let me say this one last thing. Social media. You can post things and you feel very passionate about it. But I want you to think before you hit the post button, I want you to think, is this going to help build peace? And if it isn't, it's okay to not post it. It's okay. Certain character qualities also create tension that can lead to conflict. Arrogance is one that grinds on others. Always having to be right can create conflict as well. You might win, you might be right in an argument, but you lose the opportunity to build peace with another person. You might be smarter, stronger, better looking, but always show respect to others. Never make them feel less than you. 
That is not a recipe for peace. Well, there's a second step to preparing to live at peace with others, and that is to be proactive. Take action that will promote peace with everyone, especially those you have conflict with. Just take an action. Let me suggest a few simple actions that you can take to build peace. I kind of think of these as offering peace offerings. Okay, the first is this, is listen. Listen, if you're doing all the talking, then you're missing something. You're missing what they have to say. So dial it down. Ask them a question, something that they're an expert in. If they have kids or grandkids, ask them about that. And then just let them share. Another one is be selfless. Don't think of yourself too highly when you're with anybody, but certainly when you're with people who maybe you have conflict with. Be humble in those moments, especially. Another thing you can do is just smile. You know, if you smile at someone, you're sending them a nonverbal message that, hey, you like being with them, they're important to you. Now, that may not be totally true, but you can send them a positive message. Buy a coffee for someone as a peace offering. You know, you drop off an Americano or a caramel macchiato, and you just can change somebody's day. And maybe that's the first step to restoring a relationship. Leave a note, just anonymous. Maybe you sign your name. But say something nice and genuine in that note. Take food to somebody. I will tell you that a bucket of chicken or a dozen donuts can change a person's day. Donuts, specifically, can change people's attitudes. I know that if you want to send me a dozen, I, I will be very happy to receive them. Give a compliment. Give a compliment and mean it. And watch that person light up. Text or email a friend a picture. Maybe somebody that you've been at odds with, send them a picture of a memory or something of a, of a happier time. Or maybe just a, a meme that says you're thinking about them or they mean something special to you. Volunteer. Offer to help out. Maybe you help them move or paint or babysit or maybe you mow their grass because they're in a pinch. But volunteer that. That'll save volumes about your intent in building the relationship with them. Write a thank you card. Put it in the mail. Stamp on it and mail it to them. People love receiving real personal mail. And the great thing about mail is they can open it up and reread what you wrote. Buy lunch. I think food is disarming. Sitting over a, a table of food can break down some barriers that you couldn't have in other settings. It's a great way to show kindness. Open the door for someone. Look for other ways to be polite. Expect best intentions. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They may not deserve it. They may not have earned it. But you know, when it comes to our sin and our past, God forgave us and we didn't do anything to deserve that. And yet he showed us grace. Why can't we recycle that grace and show it to others? Expect best intentions from them. You know, a kind word can make a huge difference in a person's life. Last week during our staff meeting, our ministry team 
ambush me at the end of the meeting in the spirit of pastor appreciation. You see, at the close of the meeting, one by one, they shared all these kind words, and they were all directed toward me. I can tell you that I love this team that we work with. I'm so blessed. I think they're some of the finest people in ministry that I've ever worked with. But I can promise you, after last week's meeting, I couldn't have been more proud or more blessed by them than I am right now. And it was just, it was just some kind words. The power of words is significant. You know, I learned this a long time ago. There are 12 words that can transform a person's life. If you use these words and sincerely mean what you say from your heart when you say them, you will find that God will use you to be a blessing and encouragement to every person who hears these words. The words are simply this. Please, thank you, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm praying for you. In the appropriate time, You use those words, and they will have a profound impact. You'll never really know the difference you can make simply by the way that you talk to people. Words have power to change how someone feels and how they think about you, how they think about themselves. So be proactive to bless others who you want to nurture in order to build peace. Well, the third step to prepare to live at peace with everyone is prepare to react wisely. You see, you may decide today that you're going to be a peacemaker, and I think that's awesome, but I want you to be aware of something. I want to caution you that that not everyone will respond kindly to you, even when you make the best attempt in good faith to be a peacemaker to them. So it's important to plan in advance how you will respond when they might hurt you or offend you. You're trying to do the right thing, build that bridge of peace, and they totally destroy it. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. This proverb reminds us that showing kindness is the right path forward, even to those who are unkind to us, even those who are in the category of enemy. You need to plan ahead, though, on how you're going to respond when someone offends you. How are you going to be kind in the face of their negativity or their hurtful nature? What is at stake in all of this conversation about peace? What's at stake are our relationships. People should matter to us for one basic reason, because everyone you lock eyes with matters to God. Whether you're friends with them or not, whether you're at peace with them or not, they matter to God. But they should also matter to us because, let's be honest, we're made to be with each other. We're better together than we are alone. Aristotle said, without friends, no one would choose to live, even if he had all other goods. We need one another. So let's value and protect our relationships, even when we have strong differences, and it's okay to disagree. Peace happens when we're able to disagree without being disagreeable. Why not work to build these friendships? People matter to us. 
But there are some, especially during and after an election like the one we've been experiencing, there are some who will aggravate us. They will attack our beliefs. They'll anger us, maybe even hurt us. They may do it to our face. They may do it behind our backs. They may do it through some social platform. James has some great insight on how to react when facing that kind of opposition. In James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, James says this, verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James gives us this. I want us to unpack this. He says, take note of this. That means, hey, pay attention to what is about, I'm about to say. And then he says this. Everyone should be what? Quick to listen. Everyone should be what? Slow to speak. And everyone should be slow to become angry. James gives us this process on how to help us de-escalate a situation that otherwise could turn out badly, that could cause us to kind of explode or, or go, go directly at that person aggressively, whether it be verbally or even physically. He simply says, listen first, don't talk right away, and whatever else, keep your cool. Don't blow a gasket. It's important to know this plan so that when you face a contentious situation, you react effectively. Because you may not have time to go, wow, what should I do right now? Oh yeah, maybe I should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then James tells us why responding this way is so important. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James wants all of us to know that this kind of anger doesn't produce righteousness. When we exhibit anger over politics or anything for that matter, we cease to represent Jesus well. We're kind of off the rails. Anger unleashed on others is an unrighteous behavior and it's something that offends God. We get angry arguing over politics, our actions they're not righteous. Or we may feel like we're doing God's work because we're speaking hard about abortion. But are we really representing him well? We're speaking out about the poor or we're speaking out about saving this earth. But are we really engaging people in a way that draws them to you, where you can have civil conversation over topics that a lot of people find very contentious. Righteousness is defined as acting in accordance with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. So are we righteous when we rant on social media? drawing fire from friends or from, from another political party. or I don't think we're producing righteousness. We're Christ's ambassadors. Never forget that. If you're a Christ follower, you represent him in a foreign land. We're here to represent Jesus Christ. James's point is that this anger 
isn't the life that God requires or desires. So James gives us a remedy. In verse 21, he gives us an action plan that we can follow so that we can address the problem of anger. Listen to what he says in verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Get rid of all moral filth, he says. Get rid of. That Greek word is kind of an interesting term. In the first century, it referred to taking off clothing. Like if you were to take off a jacket or you were to take off your shirt. But in the New Testament, it's used here and elsewhere to take off or lay aside something that is bad spiritually. Lay aside, he says, all moral filth. Literally, it means dirt. Lay aside all the spiritual dirt, which is a reference to bad behavior in our lives, behavior that's offensive to God. And then he says, and the evil that is so prevalent. So lay aside all moral filth and all and the evil that is so prevalent. The byproduct of moral filth will manifest itself in prevalent or widespread evil. You know, if we leave that in there, it'll percolate, it'll grow, it'll start to take over, and we'll start not spreading peace, but we'll be spreading evil. James instructs us to replace the moral filth and this evil by humbly accepting the word implanted. He challenges us to lay aside our anger and have God's word planted in our hearts and in our minds. When what James is saying is this, humble yourself to allow your heart to be influenced by God's word instead of by these outward sources that are causing us to become angry. Remember, you have the right to choose how you're going to respond. So choose to accept God's word in your heart and not be subject to the sources outside that make us angry. The word of God is powerful In fact, James says at the end of verse 21 that it can save you. And a number of us know the power of that. There will be a point when you will speak to those who are hostile to you, so choose your words wisely. In fact, prepare in advance some words, some things that you might say. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You know, this past Wednesday, I had the honor to share at the funeral of a man who did this so well. He was one of the giants of Northeast Christian Church all the way back to the era of Northern Heights Christian Church. I'm speaking about a man by the name of Raymond Sheely. He's the father of one of our great members here, one of our great owners, Alan Sheely. I want to tell you about Raymond just for a moment as we close. And the reason I want to talk about him is because Raymond was the perfect picture of a peacemaker. He was quiet and unassuming. He never wanted or needed the spotlight. 
Yet he was loved and respected by everyone who met him. He loved Jesus. He would tell you that. He loved Jesus. He lived his life for Jesus. He was one of the kindest people that I've ever known. That's true. Even when we disagreed, he would always show you grace. His son Alan said he was the best example of Jesus that he ever saw. Raymond Sheely was a peacemaker. We could use a few more Raymond Sheely's today. Will you be one? Let's pray together. Lord, I, as I reflect on Raymond Sheely's life, I am, I'm always blessed because when I remember him, I remember every experience was good. He always drew you close. He always made you feel important. He always valued you. God, help me to be more like that. God, I pray that all of us would aspire to be peacemakers. I know our world needs it maybe more right now than it has in a long time. I wonder, God, if there are people that you put in our mind's eye right now that come to our memory as we pray that we need to reach out to. Give them a call, go to lunch, have coffee, maybe just bake something and take it by or get a box of donuts or a bucket of chicken and stop by. God, help us to be peacemakers, people who are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, people who represent you well, people who are your ambassadors, who like Raymond Sheely, always make people feel important, kind of like Jesus did. God, we know our, our nation needs this. We pray for healing. We pray for this polarization to be bridged by peace. And let us be part of those builders that build those pathways of peace. Give us wisdom, God, to do that. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. And what an encouraging message from our lead minister, Monty Wilkinson. And uh, I hope it encouraged you, you know, as we strive to take steps toward Jesus and in doing so, take steps toward our neighbor and ways to love them in the way that he does. And so uh, if you'd like to process anything that you've heard this morning, please reach out to us. You can do so by emailing notes to Monty at ncclex.org, or just send us a message right there on the platform that you're tuning in on. Um, But hey, we also want to mention, man, we are so grateful for the generosity of so many people who call Northeast home. You know, um, it's one of the ways that we can partner together to propel the mission of this church and to join God in the kingdom work right here on earth as it is in heaven. And so all kinds of ways to join in. One very simple way is to give. There's um, all kinds of options to do so. There's online, uh, you can text to give, you can give in person, you can mail gifts in. But regardless of, of how, we say this often, regardless of how, we're just grateful that you do. It's really making a difference. And 
Um, and we want to celebrate all the impact that's happening because of that. But hey, again, thanks so much for tuning in with us this week again online. And we look forward to connecting real soon.